All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 17 through 19, where we're going to be tonight. Um, I'm so thankful for Summer's staff. I can speak from experience as not a staffer, but a, a person who brought students here um, for the last week of camp. It is encouraging to know that you finished strong. Um, it's really, really important. So thank you. Um, I wonder if there's anybody in the room who grew up um, playing uh, follow the leader. Maybe, yeah, follow the leader. Um, what about Simon Says? Roy, if Roy Jr. kids, go with Colt. Colt's back there at the door. If you sign up for Roy Jr., you can go with Colt. Um, good. Um, yeah, follow the leader, Simon Says. Those are pretty much the same thing. Um, also, uh, if you like sports, then if you've ever played pig, basketball, right, or horse, horse or pig, you name any other animal, you can play that as well in basketball. Uh, essentially, all of these, these games are the same thing, right? You, you have to, to pay attention, you have to listen, you have to focus and you have to do what the, the leader is doing and follow exactly what they're doing. You have to imitate them. If you don't imitate them, then you're out of the game, right? Um, and so that we know that works for, for follow the leader, Simon says, horse, pig. I know these are silly examples. However, tonight, what we're going to see in this passage is essentially follow the leader, all right? Um, and before we read the passage, I want to share with you guys a little something that the Lord has been teaching me personally um, recently. We all know um, that what, what we know about God, right, affects um, what we do, how we live our lives. What we know about God, what we believe about God impacts, those facts of what we believe about God impacts what we do. It impacts our actions, our thought processes, processes, which impacts how we live our lives. Scholars like to say, using big words, right, that uh, the indicatives come before the imperatives. So if you don't know what an indicative or an imperative is, indicatives are facts, imperatives are commands. So the indicative comes before the imperatives. Now we see this pattern throughout the scriptures. Um, and basically what that means is God cares more about who you are more than what you do. He cares more about you being his before he wants you to do anything. And we see this as, as the scriptures are flowing along. I'm going to give you some examples, right? But he cares more about your gospel identity before he gives you a command to obey, right? As Spencer said a couple weeks ago, doctrine before duty, right? What you believe Doctrine comes before what you do. And so on the slide, hopefully you'll see the, the comparisons here a little bit. Indicative before imperative, fact before faith, doctrine before duty, what you, who you are before what you do. Right? We see this throughout the scriptures. For example, in the very beginning, Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve, and he brought them into a wonderful relationship with himself and with one another. And then... All of that happened, and he said, enjoy all of that before a command came, right? Israel, later, 
before you even read the Ten Commandments, what does God say? I am the Lord your God who what? Brought you out of slavery. Who redeemed you? Who set you free? I'm God. I did these things for you. Now, boom, 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 boom. Do this, right? Um, then uh, it's all throughout the Apostle Paul's letters. One of my favorites, Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3 is straight gospel. Right before the foundations of the world, I loved you. I chose you. I did this for you. I did this for you. You've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Right? You've been, I, I broke down the barrier between God and man. I brought reconciliation. I brought redemption. I've done these things. Then it gets to chapter 4. Now, because you've been forgiven, forgive. Chapter 5, there's a beautiful picture of the gospel in, in the metaphor of marriage, right? And, and God being the bridegroom and his people being the bride. And so guess what? Husbands, this is how you're supposed to love your wives. Wives, this is how you're supposed to, to love and respond to your husbands, right? This is how you're supposed to act in parenting, in families, in the workforce. So chapters 1, 2, and 3 is all about what God, God has done, and then chapters 4, 5, and 6 is all about now live it out. This is what you're supposed to do. And why would I bring up all of that? Because that's how the book of Hebrews has been. This is how the letter, the epistle to the Hebrews has, has operated for us. And what we've seen so far is we've seen these theological observations before practical application. So chapters 1 through 12 have all been about what God has done. They've been packed with indicative statements. Rich theology before the to-dos that we've seen for the past two Sundays in chapter 13. All right? And so tonight, we're going to focus just on three verses. And we're going to see how the magnitude of, of God's grace in the gospel affects and motivates us towards action. The Lord wants us, and this is his greatest desire, he wants us to know him before he wants us to do anything for him. If we know him, then we will love him. And if we love him, then we will obey him. All right? He's not looking for cold-hearted, begrudging obedience. He's not looking for grumbling and complaining obedient servants. That's not what he's looking for. Where the Lord initiates relationship with us. He rescues us. He redeems us. He restores us in order that we might enjoy a relationship with him and love him and then obey him. It's not obey because I love you. It's I love you. I chose you. I set you apart. I've done all these things for you. And when we realize that, we acknowledge that, our affections grow for him. Right? And then we, we lovingly are willing to obey him and submit to him. And we long for his will. We long for his ways. We long to obey his word. And so we're going to read chapters, uh, chapter 13, verses 17, 18, and 19. All right, I'm going to pray for us before we read this, and then we'll dive in together. Oh, Lord, I ask right now that you would satisfy us with your word. All too often we look in so many other places to be satisfied. When your word alone can satisfy us. We are created by you and for you, Lord. And I pray that you would turn our hearts towards you right now. That you would open up our hearts and our minds to be able to see and receive the words that you have for us tonight. God, I pray that you would unite our hearts to yours tonight. 
that we would long to obey your word. For there is great joy there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look at verse 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So this is, this is wise biblical advice, right, to the church and to the church's leaders if we are willing to heed the message, if we're willing to listen and obey. Right, so, we're, so we're urged here to do something. It's a call to action. The commands are pretty simple, right? It's pretty easy to see if you just look at it, but it's difficult to obey. Here's some commands. Obey, submit, pray. Those are very simple commands, right? Obey, submit, pray. Obey because they are God-appointed. The leaders of the church are God-appointed, and they have to give an account to God, so obey. Submit because our hearts are united in mutual submission to the Lord Jesus and pray. He's saying, hey, we've already talked about how Jesus is our ultimate intercessor. And so he intercedes for us, right? We know where he is. He's an anchor, sure and steady. And and he intercedes for us, but we are called to intercede as priests as well. All brothers and sisters in Christ, pray for one another, pray for your leaders. That's what he's asking here that we would have reliance and enter into that throne of grace, draw near, obey, submit, pray. We, we have to remember that this is God's word to God's church. Now, if you, if you grew up in the Bible Belt, most people have heard or understand that, like, you have this sense of, I'm supposed to go to church. I need to, it's just a good thing to do. I need, I need to go to church, Right? Um, but there's a difference between going to church and being a church member, right? So, but what does the Bible have to say about church membership? I don't remember seeing that in the Bible anywhere. So while church membership itself isn't explicitly spelled out or commanded, it is definitely implied, and our passage tonight is one place where we see it. Let me see where. Look at verse 17. It says, obey your leaders. Submit to them. They're keeping watch over your souls. Let me ask you a few questions. How, how are you supposed to follow Jesus' commands if you're not a member of a local church? If you don't join a church, how do you know who your leaders are? Are they the leaders of the, the churches um, nearest your house? Are they the leaders of of the, the church where you came from, the church you used to be a member at that you don't go to anymore? Are they the leaders of your favorite books that you read from pastors? Maybe favorite podcast? Are those the leaders that are looking after your soul? No, because they don't know you. They don't have a relationship with you. Right? Apparently, Jesus thinks you should obey a group of leaders in a relationship, that you're supposed to know who they are, right? Not only that, but a group of leaders are supposed to be watching over your soul. 
a particular group of leaders. And this group of leaders is supposed to be getting joy out of your life. And which leaders are those? Is it the TV preacher? No? Maybe your favorite church app pastor. The Bible wants you to be in relationship with a local church where you know the leaders and the leaders know you. And that can't happen unless you commit yourself to a local church. And I think sometimes people forget that while pastors are leaders of the church, they're also members in the church. Pastors and deacons are members of the church as well. So we can approach these verses from two different perspectives, from the pastor's perspective and from the people's perspective. And I wanted to look at both of those tonight. If you look at, uh, if you remember, in, in earlier in this chapter, he's already spoken about, about leadership. He brought up in verse 7, leaders, right? He said, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Remember, consider, emulate them. It's good to think back. Think back on those people who taught you the word of God. Think back on your teachers, on your pastors, on your previous leaders who impacted your life. So this verse is telling us to, to think back to those who taught you the word of God. When you were growing up, who taught you the word? Maybe you came to faith early, later in life. But who discipled you? Who pointed you to the gospel? Who encouraged you? Right? Who, who remained faithful to the word? Who lived above reproach? Who, who could you look to who you knew, man, they don't just believe it, they live it out. They have a lived faith. It's active. It changes the way they live their lives. It changes their perspective on life. I know I can seek to emulate them. As I reflect back on my life and, and just dwell on the people who poured into me, I could not help but be overwhelmed with thanksgiving to the Lord for all the people who were faithful to teach me, even though I was super annoying and a terrible student. I, I may not remember exactly what they taught, but I do remember that they were there. I do remember that I could call them at any point in time. I do remember them picking me up and taking me to lunch. I do remember them having me over to their home for a meal. I do remember them being there and making a point to pray with me and pray for me and check up on me, right? Because there's a relationship there. They pointed me to the scriptures. And through the spirit, they provided much needed godly counsel and direction in my life. And I'm super thankful for that. And because of that, I, I gladly submitted with joy to their leadership and sought to obey them as they were obeying the scriptures. So let's look at this passage from the people's perspective. When it says obey your leaders, this is not some blind leap of faith obedience, right? This is not, don't think like slavish, like unthinking obedience. Like this is willing, respectful, supportive obedience as a team player, not an opponent. You're on the same team, right? This is not submitting to a superior it's not like pastors are up on some extra level of super Christian 
and there's some other other level where everybody else is on, right? It's the same team, right? So pastors are not elite above everybody else. This is acknowledging that pastors themselves are submitting to Christ as Lord and therefore humbly leading so that the people can eagerly yield to their leadership knowing it's under Christ as head and it's under the scriptures as guide and it's under the Holy Spirit as the counselor. People are willing to be led when they have a teachable spirit and realize that with great responsibility comes great accountability. In his commentary, Richard Phillips pointed out six different reasons for obedience and submission. I want to go through these really quick. should be on the screen for you. Number one, leaders are true spiritual guides who go before the flock into the word of God, into prayer, and into the Christian life. Number two, their authority comes from Christ. Ephesians 4 says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Number three, they keep watch over your souls. And number four, they will have to give an account for that. And number five, obedience makes spiritual leadership a joy and not a burden. And number six, there is no advantage to people for our ministers to be burdened by division and strife and unbelief in the church. Now, when I die and stand before the Lord, nobody else but me will give will be held accountable for how I led my family. Nobody else but me will be responsible for how I was a husband to Allie or father to my children. My fellow elders will not be responsible for how I led my family. Right? I'm going to be responsible for that. But if I go out of bounds in my personal life or in any decision that I seek to make, amongst the group of elders that we have at this church and they start to see disorder in my life, you better believe they better call me out. Right? Because I'll be held accountable to them. The church is accountable. But leaders, the church won't be held responsible, but the leaders will be held responsible for how they led the church. That's why plurality of elders is important. Pastors... Look at verse 19. Pastors should long to be with their people. Right? This letter, this is the first time that the writer of this letter is making something personal. There wasn't a personal address at the beginning of the letter. There wasn't a, a personal greeting. right? But here at the end, he's, he's saying something personal. He's saying, I long to be with you. And I long for you to pray for me. Pray for us, not just me personally, like it was one, one pastor. But it says pray for us, plural, speaking of plurality of elders, right? He's saying, he's saying I want to be with you. There's nothing like being with God's people in the presence. You can write, right? You can communicate through writing, but there's nothing like being with the people. And you have an advantage, people, when you listen and obey, says there's an advantage, but you're at a disadvantage when you fail to heed the instruction from Christ-centered leaders. So how people respond to leadership gauges whether it's going to be advantageous or not. And any parent knows that, right? People can be easy to lead or they can be a pain. Every teacher knows, right? If you got students who listen and obey, 
and they're super awesome to lead. But you also have some students who are just unteachable. They don't have a, a, a willing, teachable spirit. They don't want to listen. They don't want to pay attention. They don't want to heed the instruction, right? And that's, there's no joy in that classroom. Let's look at these verses from a pastoral perspective. Look at verse 17 again. A lot of people read verse 17 as if this is just to the church. But this is meant for pastors too. Before anyone can be a leader, they must learn how to follow. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. A good leader knows the Lord, loves the Lord, and obeys the Lord and seeks to submit to the Lord while submitting to the scriptures. Now, I've been asked, on multiple occasions over the course of preaching in my life. Hey, Joseph, you've been doing this for years. Do you ever get nervous when you stand up to teach or when you go to preach somewhere? The answer, 100%, every single time. Why? Because this is God's word. Isn't that something that I made up? Isn't that something that, like, you don't need anything that I have to say. I'm not wise in and of myself, right? We need God's word. So when I open God's word or when anybody else opens God's word, we should tremble when we teach the Bible because this is God's word. And I tremble when I teach because I fear the Lord. And I know that there's no power in my words, that I can't say anything to anybody that's going to change their mind or that's going to transform their heart. I can't do that. I know somebody who can, though. The one who wrote the scriptures. The one who gave us the scriptures. A very humbling passage is James 3.1. It says, Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Right, this is a chilling verse. It's super sobering. It's a reminder that teaching is extremely serious. No one should take this lightly. Right? Leading in a church is weighty. It's serious business. Why? Because of what's at stake. What's at stake? Verse 17 says, you're watching over people's souls. You will be held accountable for their souls, for how you led Every single pastor is responsible for how they shepherd or not. Every pastor will stand before the master one day and give an account for how they led his church. Jesus is the chief shepherd. Pastors are under shepherds, temporary managers. Leading in God's church involves the care of souls, which is no small thing. Now, everyone has someone that they report to, right? If you've ever had a job or multiple jobs, you've had multiple bosses. Everybody who had a job knows that if you have a good relationship with the boss, it's easier to do what they say. If you have a poor relationship with the boss or if the boss doesn't want to have a relationship with you at all and doesn't care about you at all, is it easy to do what they say? No, right? Because if you have no relationship, if you feel like they don't care, 
then you, they're going to get some begrudging, hard-hearted obedience. Because it's just my job. Just do it for the money. That's not the relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. That's not how the relationship should operate within the church. Right? There's a, there's a mutual obedience and submission that happens with leaders in the church and, and the, the sheep in the church. The good boss is connected with their people. They know their people. They have a good relationship with their people. A bad boss is disconnected, right? Gives off the vibe of, I don't care. Just do your job. Kind of running the place like a dictator. Disconnected. Not a good leader. Verse 17 says, carry out this with joy. Not groaning. Now, ministry just like anything, can be joyful or it can be draining. And many people, they don't think about this, a lot of people don't think about this at all, but many pastors every month leave the ministry. And you've probably heard there's churches that just shut down, churches don't have a lot of people coming, they shut the doors. Pastoral burnout is a real thing. Right, Lifeway Research did a survey and they indicated that about 250 pastors leave the ministry every month. 250. Sadly, this is a reality because of one crucial element that's missing in the pastor-people relationship. And that element is seen in verse 17. It's joy. Joy is the essential characteristic that should mark the relationship between the pastor and the people. Now, let me explain that using a metaphor. Metaphor is marriage. So joy should be a primary mark in the relationship between a husband and a wife. And everybody should see it. Everybody should know it. The scriptures say in Proverbs... Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be enraptured with her love. So have joy in your wife. Be enthralled with her. Be obsessed with her. Be crazy about her. I rejoice in my wife. If I don't rejoice in my wife, I'm tempted to find joy in a fantasy or in some other woman. That's why I need to rejoice in my wife. If there is joy in my wife, then there's satisfaction. And I rejoice in coming home. And I don't groan about having to come home because I get to come home. It's not like I have to. I get to do it. I get to come home. And it's a joy because I'm not married to a miserable woman. Right? It's a, there's joy in the relationship. Christian marriage is not like you ever hold the old ball and chain. It's not jail. It's not prison. Right? I'm not shackled. Right? It's a delight. It's a joyful relationship. And the scriptures are clear that, that wives have a great responsibility in the relationship. And, and they, they can sway how a husband responds. Everybody would, would agree that women are powerful. I hope that you would agree with that. 
But when it comes to creating a warm and welcoming environment in a home, women are very powerful when it comes to that and how a husband responds. Ministers are to serve with joy in the church, not begrudgingly. And this is not the only place where it says it. First Peter 5 says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So joy, not groaning, should mark the pastor and the people relationship. And without joy, there's no advantage to the people. There's no help. There's no blessing for the people. Now, there's plenty of reasons to groan, right? Everybody has reasons to groan. But joy in the Lord is different than just mere happiness, right? Because joy in the Lord is not dependent upon your circumstances, your situation, or your environment. Pastors could groan about the people, and the people could equally groan about the pastors, But moaning and groaning and whining and complaining is worthless and a waste of time. It's of no advantage, and it doesn't lead to spiritual growth. Groaning is not one of the fruits of the Spirit, but joy is. Hope, peace, joy, they're not dependent on things that shift or change. In the very same chapter, what does it say about Jesus? He's the same yesterday today and forever he doesn't shift he doesn't change that's where our joy should be and remember he's our ultimate leader i've said it before i'll say it again you don't have perfect pastors right your pastors will mess up they will fall short that's why you need to pray for them but we have a perfect pastor we have a pastor who doesn't change we have a pastor who's always been there whose tenure is 100%. He ain't going nowhere. He's not going to leave. He's not going to move on. He's not going to die. He's our ultimate leader, the ultimate one we submit to. He's the ultimate one that we seek to emulate. Jesus was all about joy. He even prayed for his disciples to bear fruit to the glory of God. And for his joy to be their joy. And for it to be full and lasting. Listen to this. John 15. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And the Father has loved me. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Did you see how love came before commandments here again? I've loved you. You should probably obey. Abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus wants your lives to be marked by joy. Jesus wants his church to be marked by joy. Jesus prays for your joy. Jesus longs for you to be joyful. He longs for me to be joyful. I think this blows our minds. Oftentimes we think if we go away from the Lord, if we seek our own satisfaction, we'll be happier. We'll be more satisfied if we pursue our own pleasure. But that's a lie because Jesus wants you to be more joyful than you are when you leave him. 
There's no satisfaction or pleasure that's greater than being in a relationship with your creator and living how he created you to live and doing what he created you to do, glorifying him. There's no greater joy than glorifying the Lord. Jesus longs for us to have joy in relationship with him and in the church. So the first and primary quest that we should have each and every day is how might I find joy in the Lord today? This goes for the pastor and the people. How might we rejoice in the Lord together? And if we don't find joy in the Lord, we'll try to find it somewhere else, in somebody else, in some place else, outside of the bounds of what the Lord has said. And that's why a lot of us seek satisfaction elsewhere. We try to find it outside of the Lord outside of his church. In his commentary, William Lane said this, the responsibility, and this is where he brings it together, the responsibility of a pilgrim people, the church, is respect for those who have been appointed to leadership in the church, imitation of their godly lives, support of their various ministries, and earnest prayer for their integrity. The responsibility of the leaders is the sharing of the word of God, deep faith, diligence in the fulfillment of their ministries, a clear conscience, and responsible behavior. Neither the pilgrim people nor the leaders may relax their vigilance for a moment. For together they will display to the world the character of the Christian commitment and the quality of brotherly love. Together, united, the church. I think all too often, people forget that pastors are people too. That pastors need the gospel of grace just as much as anybody else. Yes, one main function of the pastor is to pray for the people. But this passage says, pray for us. Pray for us. The writer is saying, he hasn't asked the people to do one thing in this whole letter. But he says, pray for us. Pray for me. This is super important. Are you praying for your pastors? I'm talking to a lot of people in here who aren't members of Red Oak. There's a lot of churches represented. Are you praying for your pastors? Are you praying for those who lead in the church? As church leaders seek to honor the Lord, to lead with integrity. They need the prayers of the people. So how? How can you pray for church leadership? Well, here's some examples. Pray that they would obey and submit to the scriptures like they should. Pray that their hearts would be oriented toward God's will, towards God's way, towards God's word. Pray that they would be on guard against temptation Pray that they would walk in the power of the Spirit and not in their flesh. Pray that they fall more in love with Jesus. Pray for authentic confession and genuine repentance and godly grief. Pray for provision of body and mind. Pray against despondency. There's too many pastors who are depressed and struggling with depression. Pray for wisdom and discernment. Pray that they would give biblical, faithful counsel when asked, pray for their marriages. Pray for their parenting. Pray for how they lead at home. Pray for spiritual protection because there's a massive target on their back. 
Because the enemy knows if I can take out the pastor, then the sheep will scatter. Now, I'm sure that in a room this size, there's plenty of people in here who've been hurt by the church. You've been hurt by the church at large. You've been hurt by witnessing hypocrisy. And maybe you've been hurt by a pastor or a church leader specifically. Someone sinned against you. Maybe a leader sinned against you. Maybe a pastor sinned against you. Unfortunately, many churches have split and have died. And the members have been damaged due to pastoral failure, due to moral failure, due to sexual morality, due to greed, due to jealousy, due to leadership abuse, due to pride. That's why you need to pray for the leaders because they're just as susceptible to other sins just as anybody else because they're people. If the enemy can take out the pastor, he knows that the sheep would be easy targets. Easy prey because nobody's watching out. So let's bring it home. Four main points of action. Number one, obey and submit to God-given authority. Number two, join a church and be involved. Number three, rejoice in the Lord. And number four, pray for your leaders. Number one, seek to eagerly obey and submit to the authority of the word of God as it is presented. And if you aren't a member of the local church, then a simple practical step is join the church. Join a church. It's a very biblical and good first step that you can take. Shameless plug, Red Oak happens to have a membership class next month. So you can sign up for that online. Pursue joy in the Lord. Right? Rejoice in the Lord. If each one of us chose day by day to rejoice in the Lord, to be content in the Lord, despite our situations, despite our circumstances, despite our environment, what would the congregation look like? Right, Renwick would be known as a congregation of joy, a church of joy. Do people, when they come in and visit, do they sense joy? Do they feel the joy? Do they see the joy? There's something different, right? There's something different about these people, right? Jesus said people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And if you love the Lord and if you love one another, and if there's joy, like, you cannot deny when you see a couple in public if they love one another. Right? It's obvious. It's just very obvious. Everybody knows Zach loves Rocky. This is very obvious. You know? It's true. I love it. It's great. Do people know that you love the Lord? Is your life marked by joy? Can people, can people pick up on it? Do they see it? Has anybody ever asked you before, what, why are you so different? Why, everybody else around you is just blah, but you're like joyful, and you have no reason to be. Why? Then that's an open door to share the gospel. Pray for your leaders. 
And teach your kids to pray for their leaders. I'll never forget a few weeks ago when we were going through the verse 7 and in family worship on Sunday morning, me and Allie were talking to Titus and Case about this. We were like, who are, who are the people who, who teach you the Bible? And, and they started naming people in Treehouse and Treehouse Jr. and, and Roy Jr. By, and, and calling people by name and saying what they saw in their life. And, and a lot of what they saw was they were marked by joy. And they, and they loved how they led. Right? And they appreciated the, the investment that they were making in their lives. But are we teaching our kids how to pray for the leaders in the church? Because that's important, and they need it. So if we apply these scriptures, if we all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the ultimate leader, then we'll be marked with joy, with greater joy, a joy, a joy that's strong, that can't be destroyed by anything or anyone. Right? And our chief shepherd, who never sleeps, who constantly watches over us, who never leaves us, who never changes, he'll always be with us. That's why we can be joyful. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. Praise you that you have not left us alone. Jesus, that when you rose from the grave, you came back to your disciples. You didn't immediately go back to the Father, but you came back to your disciples. And you enjoyed being with them once again. You enjoyed dining with them. You enjoyed the looks on their faces when they saw you, the resurrected Lord. And you gave them a commission to go and to share the gospel to all the nations, to build your church, to continue what you started. And we praise you that you have not left your church alone. God, we praise you that you have given your church leaders that you've given your church your word, that you've given your church your spirit, and that your spirit brings forth the fruit of joy. We pray that you would forgive us, Lord, where we have failed to obey, where we have not heeded your instruction, where we have not submitted to your spirit, and where we've completely rejected your word where we've sought satisfaction in other places and other things and in other people. God, I pray that we would turn from our wicked ways, that we would act like your people, that our lives would be marked with joy, that this church would be known as a place of joy and of love, and that people would be curious and ask and wonder why, so that we could tell them, about this great and glorious gospel that you have given to us, that you want us to know you, you want us to love you, so that we could obey you and experience fullness of joy like we were created to experience. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.